Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. I'm really excited to be up here today. This is an awesome day where we get to celebrate together the accomplishments of a large number of high school and college graduates. They have persevered through some of the most difficult educational years that we can imagine in recent memory. Um, and they get to stand proudly knowing that they have They've accomplished, they've conquered, they've graduated. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read down through my list of all my graduates. And as I call your name, graduates, I would like you to just start coming forward. Uh, We can fill this side of the stage. There's going to be a lot of you, so don't be afraid to, you know, spread out a little bit if you need. Um, And as they come up, don't hold your applause. Just let's, let's celebrate them as we're calling their names. So... Uh, and I will say, most of the names on this list are here. There are a few who weren't able to make it, so if you don't see somebody coming up, that's why, just so you know. Okay, so starting off, Elena Creeley is graduating. Yes. Madison Evans. Josh Fry. Cora Hawk. Desiree Jacobs, Zach Mazur, Stephen Montgomery, Margaret Neff, Jacob Norman, John Norman, Noah Painter, Elijah Sawyer, Kyle Sullivan, and Ella Swigert. So just, I'm pausing because these are our high school graduates. They graduated from from high school. Now on to our college graduates. There are four. Savannah Davenport. Megan Geyser, or Hyatt, it's my sister. Josh Hickman. And Katie Mazur. Oh, you're on my side, this side. I'm going to go all the way over here. So, as I said, uh, you guys have accomplished just an amazing feat. I mean, graduating anything in, in general is a huge, huge ordeal. Like, high school, colleges are not small things to, to get through. But to get through it in the last couple of years, what we've had going on, man... Hats off to you. You guys did a great job. So I, I, want, I want to leave you with a little encouragement. And so I, I just take a couple of minutes, probably more than I'm supposed to take, but oh well, we'll get through it. Uh, this morning, I was sitting with our high schoolers. We have a, a Sunday morning Bible study, and we were just talking, and I, we got on the, I, this topic of what, what character would you be? This is something that, that a lot of friend groups like to talk about. Like, if you were in the Star Wars universe, which character would you be? And which Harry Potter character or what, like, 
And this is something that we do a lot, where we watch something, we're watching a show, we, we have this thing that we really enjoy, and we like to put ourselves in that universe, or we like to take that, that character and say, where, which one do I relate to? And, and the question that I asked them and left hanging all morning was, why? Why is it that we have this tendency as people to look at things that we enjoy and try and put ourselves in them? You know, and we try to say, well, I'm this character, and I'm like that character. And there's this, this tendency to want to relate to these things that we enjoy. And I think it comes all the way back to the way that we're created. We're created as image bearers. We're created to bear the image of God. That's how he created us. Kind of like mirrors. Actually, to be more, I guess, to define that better, kind of like the moon. The moon is nothing without the sun. It's just a ball. But when at night, we see it reflecting the glory of our sun. Right? Here's the problem. Here's what we run into as people. We tend to put our focus on different things in different seasons. And we reflect what we're putting our attention to. And so you guys are coming into this season. You're, you're leaving one season of your life and you're entering another, whether that's going from high school to college, or you're going on to a job, you're getting married, you're moving on to this next stage of life, known or unknown. And there's going to be a lot of different things that are going to start pulling for your attention. They're going to start vying for you to look to, and you're going to start reflecting those things. So the challenge as you transition from one stage of life into the next, watch your focus. What is it that you're looking towards? What is it that you're putting your hope and your identity in? Are you putting your hope and your identity in your college degree, in your future jobs, in, in your future colleges and your degrees? Or are you putting your attention, your focus on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And part of that is your community. So that's the next part of this question. What community do you have moving forward? And for a lot of you guys, that's, I don't know, because I haven't met my new community yet. You haven't gone off to college. You haven't moved to go to your, your next, next stage in life. But whatever that looks like, be sure that you find yourself a community. You cannot, we're, we were not created to walk this walk alone. That's why we have the church. That's why we're a body. So whatever that means for you, Stay connected. And also know that this place right here, even though you might actually leave us and we'll write you off forever. Just kidding. Obviously, we would not. That's not my point. My point is actually the exact opposite. No matter where you go in life, this is a home for you. You always will have community. You will always have people here who are praying for you, who are championing you. So just remember that. And I'll also use that as a wonderful transition for those of you who are not yet involved in our young adult ministry. We have a great community of young adults who are from college graduate up till 30-something. And we would invite you to actually come and be a part. Even if you're getting ready to move away and go on to different things, we've got some summer events going on. I believe June 27th is when the next thing is. There was a slide up there. We're having a picnic at Matt McCarrier's house with the young adults. So we would invite you to become a part of, of that community while you're here. And again, just watch your focus. 
I'm going to say a prayer of you guys. I would invite you, just because of the vast number of people up here, probably not the best use of our time to have everybody come up and lay hands. But if you want to you know, stand and extend your hand or sit, whatever, we're going, to, we're going to pray a prayer of commission over these high school and college graduates and then present them their gifts and just continue to celebrate them. Make sure that whenever we go to the connection dinner that you take some time to go out of your way to go and just congratulate, meet these amazing young people. Uh, while we're fellowshipping together this afternoon. So if you would join me in prayer. Jesus, we are so thankful for these young men and women who are standing on this stage. God, their accomplishments are, are awesome, and we know that the only way that they were able to accomplish what they did is because of your power in them, your life in them. And Lord, we trust them into your hands as they progress from one stage into the next as they get ready to take this next leap of faith. We have no choice but to trust them with you. And we know that you love them more than we can ever imagine. We know that you have hope and you have a plan, you have purpose. God, I just, I just plead with you, I, I beg you to just wrap your arms around them, to guide their steps to help them focus, to help them see you, even in the minutia, even in the, the chaos of, of college and of career and family. Lord, guide their steps, hold their hearts, and help them to, be, help them to know that no matter what happens, they are loved not only by us here at North Main, but by you, our Heavenly Father, perfectly, perfectly loved. We thank you, we praise you, and we give you all honor and glory, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon, one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, we welcome you today. I know many of you are here for graduation Sunday, so welcome. Those of you online, we're glad you're joining us today. I'm glad that uh, you're watching from wherever you are today, so welcome. Um, we start a new series today. Uh, and it's called The Wisdom of Peace. And we're actually in our Bible reading for the year in a section of literature in the Old Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, called The Wisdom Literature or The Wisdom uh, Writings of various different people. A lot of them are attributed to this guy by the name of King Solomon, who was the king, or I should say the last king of the unified kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> After Solomon... The kingdom would divide into two, a northern and a southern kingdom, almost like in a civil war against each other, but that's a different topic for a different time. There were only three kings of the united kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. The first one was Saul. That didn't go well. David was then anointed, son of Jesse, to be the king over Israel in place of Saul but would have to wait to ascend the throne after the death of Saul. And so when David ascended the throne, his kingdom became amazingly great. He's known as one of the greatest kings of Israel, and yet still a flawed man if you read any of his story. Saul, uh, David would have multiple sons, but the one son from Bathsheba, whom he committed adultery with, the second son that she conceived of his would be known as Jedidiah or Solomon. And Solomon is the one who we now attribute 
most of the wisdom literature too, with exception of Job. It doesn't mean nobody else wrote wisdom literature, but he wrote predominantly most of the Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes, more than likely, and the Song of Solomon, or what you might know as a Song of Songs. Today we start with this question, what is wisdom? If we're going to be talking about it all month, what is it? Where do I get it? What does it look like when I have it? And how do I use it properly? Today we're going to contrast wisdom with ignorance, or what Proverbs chapter 1 calls simple-mindedness in the New Living Translation. What is simple-mindedness or ignorance? We're going to probe the depths of those questions today. So wisdom, what is it? Well, according to Proverbs 1, the root word for wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 is actually, uh, it actually means wisdom, but wisdom in this context is the ability to apply knowledge or experience or even understanding or common sense and insight properly. Let me say that again. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge, experience, understanding, or common sense properly. Do you see that much? What is common sense? What is knowledge or experience or understanding? See, one of the things I learned in college was that knowledge is one thing, understanding another thing, experience quite another. And I can have all of the knowledge, the book knowledge of the world, but it doesn't mean I have common sense. Knowing how to apply the knowledge you gain through life experience, through education, through critical thinking, in a way of common sense, is wisdom. We don't teach that much in our institutions today. We don't teach critical thinking the way we used to. It's more indoctrination, something the church has been accused of for centuries. All the church wants to do is indoctrinate you. No, we want you to know the truth that can set you free. But here's what I challenge you. Wisdom is the ability to probe the depths of God, who I believe is the source of all wisdom, and apply that wisdom to life in a way that frees you from sin and death. Jesus, again, you hear me quote this all the time because this was a transforming verse for me in college. I had to come to grips with the fact that even sitting under teachers of theology and biblical studies who gave me all of the different facets of belief on Christianity, and some of them were earth-shattering and groundbreaking to this Sunday school kid who had grown up in the church and realized, oh, There's a little bit more to this than I realized, and some of it I might not have understood properly. I've seen students, and Sarah Lee could tell you the same. We were in school together studying a bachelor's degree, studying for our bachelor's degree in ministry, theology, and biblical studies, and we saw peers of ours fall by the wayside because they couldn't handle what they were learning. And I don't slight them for that, But one of the things that I learned at school is to think critically. And if you are a true believer in Christ, you learn to think critically about the things of God. This is where I think the church oftentimes fails um, 
or church leaders oftentimes fail the members is that we don't challenge you to probe deeper because we're afraid that if you do, you might leave the church. See, this is oftentimes a lot of pastors, spiritual leaders' fear is that if they truly probe the depths, then they might walk away from the faith. I'm of the opposite opinion. I think the deeper you seek God and seek the truth, God will pull back the veil and show you a piece of himself more than you realize. And so this is one of the things for skeptics. And I've, I've again, been in ministry going on 22 years. And one of the things I've learned is to say, push into God as deep as you can. Pull him apart. Take him into the laboratory of your mind and pull it all apart because I have enough faith and belief that if you are willing to legitimately do that, God will show you a deeper aspect of who he is and draw you closer to him. Okay? So you, I, 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 I do tackle tough topics from this stage because I feel that I am held to a higher account and someday I'll stand before the great judge of all creation and he'll say, how did you handle my word? Actually, he knows how I handle his word. I hope that if you go anywhere or hear any other teacher, if they're giving you fluff, that you start to question why. See, we do this with kids a lot of times. We don't think that kids can handle deeper truths, and so we give them fluff. One of the things I've been doing over the past two years is teaching 7th and 8th grade Bible at Penn Christian Academy, and I believe they have the ability to discern deeper truths of God's word than we give them credit for. And BJ shaking his head, he knows that, working with our middle school and senior high kids. They are able to do that. And if we are not raising the bar in the church, teaching our kids, we lose, why are we losing a generation? Why have we been losing generations? It's because we don't teach the deeper truths of God's word and we don't teach the wisdom and understanding that can only come from God so that when they get into the higher education institutions, they hear what Paul calls high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies that are extremely convincing, but they have no foundation of faith and they have no foundation of truth and so they go the way of the world. Ironically, I planned this message out months ago, not thinking that today was going to be graduation Sunday. So it's funny how the Lord plans these things. But Proverbs chapter 1, starting with verse 20, we believe, again, that Solomon is writing this. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Follow along with me. Wisdom shouts in the streets. He personifies wisdom as a woman, and we'll get to that in just a moment, wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street, to those gathered in front of the city gate. Why is that important to know? Because at ancient times, all business, all governmental matters were discussed at the city gates. They didn't have a courthouse. They didn't have an assembly somewhere in the heart of town all matters of business, any contracts that were to be agreed upon, all government matters for the city were discussed at the city gate. So, 
Now that we have that in mind, she calls to the crowds along the main street to those gathered in front of the city gate. She's calling out to the politicians too. Just think about that for a minute. And then in verse 22, which I think is awesome, she insults them, which is what wisdom does by its very nature. It insults the ignorant without even trying to. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? How long will you mockers relish your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Come and listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you, and I'll make you wise. Do you catch the appeal? Lady Wisdom is calling out in the streets. She beckons all to come and learn from her. Because she knows that she is giving truth, unadulterated, unmasked, non-deceiving truth. She's calling to everyone in every place within that city. As she calls today, everyone in every place in society. And she says, I will share my heart with you and I will make you wise. And then verse 24, I called, I called you often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice, and you rejected the correction I offered. So I will laugh when you're in trouble. I'll mock you when disaster overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster engulfs you like a cyclone and anguish, anguish and distress overwhelm you. And when you cry for help, I won't answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and they chose not to fear the Lord. Philipp, or no, Philippians, Proverbs 1, 7. What is that? Somebody tell me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They rejected my advice. They paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way. Whew. I'm telling you, it's hard not to read Scripture and see it repeating I see history repeating itself. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of, their, of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons, they turn away from me to death. <laughs> Fools are destroyed by their own complacency, uh, complacency, but all who listen to me will live in what? All who listen to wisdom, not just listening. It, this is an active listening. This is the Shema. What is Shema? It, is the, it means to hear. It's an active hearing. The, the Jewish people recite the Shema regularly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They repeat that every day. 
if you were an Orthodox Jew, maybe even multiple times a day. And the word hear, O Israel, is Shema. And it's an active listening. It's not just to hear noise. It is to take into yourself the very words being spoken so that they not only plant themselves in your heart and in your life, but they sprout up in a great harvest of understanding. But all who listen, who shema me, will live in peace. Shalom. Untroubled by fear of harm. Um, we, over the past year and a half, going on two years now, we've had great reason to fear. Haven't we? And some of us still live in it. Now this isn't Fear driven by ignorance, sometimes it is, but this is fear driven by the realities of living in a world that's fallen and broken that can hurt and harm us or those around us, yes? Okay. But what are we to do as believers in God? We are to fear not. We don't fear the world around us. Instead, we rise above it. We are affected by it, but we know we are citizens of a different kingdom, that the kingdoms of this world will all fade away eventually, but the kingdom of God will last forever. So as, citizen, as citizens of that kingdom, we know that we are secure enough not to worry about what this world throws at us, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's being taken over by China or Russia or any number of other things out there, whether it's a gas line being shut down and the East Coast is without gas for a while. We know that those things do affect us, but they don't have eternal effect on us. The one who is wise understands that. The one who is simple-minded worries and frets over the things of this life. Jesus tells us, what does it gain you if you worry? Can you extend your life? No. What does it do? It actually takes away life. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, that what stress does to the body is actually shortens your life. Yes? Yes. Medical reports are out that show and prove that. And a lot of that, if not all of it, is rooted in fear. And yet, Proverbs 1-7 says that the fear of the Lord... <laughs> okay, so that sounds contradictory. Last June, it's been a year ago, when we came back into this facility in person again... We did a whole month on fear. And for two weeks, I discussed what the fear of man was. And for two weeks, I discussed what the fear of God was. And they are not the same. The fear of man leads us down paths of destruction. The fear of God leads us to a place of liberation. Because the fear of God is this fear that we stand before an almighty God in awestruck wonder. It's when we understand who God is in all of his sovereignty and greatness, and we fall on our faces before him in holy reverence, knowing that he is the creator and we are the created. 
That is a holy, awesome fear that we are to have. And the only fear we are called to have anywhere in Scripture. But I fear the church is in the grips of the fear of man and the world. Why is it ineffective in our culture? Because we're afraid. We've allowed wisdom to go by the wayside and simple-mindedness to drive our churches. We've allowed it to drive our politics. We've allowed politics to creep into the church instead of the church influencing the politics of our society. We've allowed it to affect the educational institution of the United States of America, and we've bowed out, we think, gracefully. And we've become an abomination to God. Because instead of being light and salt and taking the truth of God into the public arena, we cower away in fear of what man could do to us. It's no secret what's going on in societies across the globe, like in China. Do you know the Christian church is under such great persecution in China because the communist government is cracking down? They're coming into public houses of worship and they're taking crosses off the walls and off the steeples and placing pictures of their president on the walls. Did you know any of this? Some of you do. Well, I just don't like to read the news. It's so depressing. Wake up! It's happening and we are being taken over. The church that sleeps is the church that dies. The church that cocoons itself off from society is the church that's not only ineffective, but where the Spirit of God has said, okay, if that's what you want, I want no part of it. And it's departed from the presence of his people. You know where the church is ineffective? And lacks power and authority because we've given up that power and authority and we've said we can't do it. And in one sense, we're right because we can't. But in another sense, we're wrong because in him, we can do all things who gives us strength. But see, we don't believe that. We don't put that to the test. We don't believe in God enough to be so deeply rooted in that kind of faith and submission We'd rather turn a blind eye. We want to keep our family safe. We want to keep our fortune safe, our security. We want, to, we want to be safe. And I'm reminded of that C.S. Lewis quote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What's the little girl's name? Lucy is on her way. Thank you. Drew blank. She's on her way to meet King Aslan. And she asks this simple question, is he safe? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, what do they say? Oh, no, dearie, he is not safe. But he's good. He's good. And I'll take good over safe any day. Can I be candid with you for a moment? I haven't gotten to my points, and I will later. Later. 
No, I'm just kidding. Don't close, don't shut me off online. I, it'll be, I'll make it expedient, all right? I don't claim to be a prophet of God. I don't claim to have great insight into what's coming down the pike in the future, but I'm concerned. We've had it so good for so long, church. And I think we fail or neglect to see the writing on the wall because we've been lulled to sleep in our culture. And we've allowed the enemy to encroach his way upon every aspect of our culture. And he's encroached upon the church. And many of our churches are succumbing to the effects of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not only watering down the truth of the gospel in our public arenas, he's watering it down in our congregations and in our denominations and in our churches. The churches that will survive the coming persecution are those that bow to the government officials, not the ones who bow to God. The remnant, the faithful believers in Christ Jesus who will not compromise the truth of the gospel will be driven from the public places into underground churches. Do I have great insight to that? No, but I am a student of history, specifically church history. And what I'm seeing and what's going on in the globe and now in our own country is this tsunami on the horizon. And there are warning bells going off in the high places saying, get ready, prepare. Get ready, prepare. And I, I'm taking this seriously. I, don't, I hope you are too. But if you buried your head in the sand, you're not looking at the markers within the cultural shift, you're going to be taken off guard and you'll be just <gasps> surprised by it. And, and I'm not naive enough to think that the church won't lose people. And I don't mean to death or persecution. I mean to those who say, ooh, this is something I didn't sign up for. When great persecution comes, a purging happens. Sadly, because people say, mm-mm, too much. It's too much for me. I'd rather go this way than that. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I don't know how far that will go in our society. I hope it doesn't go too far. But if everything in history is correct, and we're going down that same path that many other societies have in times past, the church, when it comes under pressure, is purged of all that which is impure. And when it's purified, it explodes in growth. I don't know why that has to be the way it is in society, but when the church comes under persecution is when it's at its best. Just a side note for you. Key point is those who learn the way of wisdom learn to live in peace no matter what happens in this life. The pursuit of wisdom is ultimately the pursuit of God. The pursuit of wisdom is ultimately the pursuit of God. One of the leading Jewish theologians and philosophers, one of my favorite authors uh, of the 20th century, uh, is a guy by the name of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he says, 
in his book, God in Search of Man, there can be no honest denial of the existence of God. There can be only faith or the honest confession of inability to believe or arrogance. Man could maintain inability to believe or suspend his judgment if he were not driven by the pressure of existence into a situation in which he must decide between yes or no, in which he must decide what or whom to worship. He is driven towards some sort of affirmation. In whatever decision he makes, he implicitly accepts either the realness of God or the absurdity of denying him. There is no other conclusion. When faced with a belief in God or not, there is no middle ground. It is yes or no. And the one who learns wisdom learns that it is yes. In essence, as beings who are created in the image of God, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Those of us created in the image of God, we have only two choices, belief or unbelief. The one who chooses ignorance chooses the way of unbelief because they believe the ways of the world. There is no other option given to mankind. It's either yes or no, belief or unbelief. Denying the existence of God is not a wise choice. Especially in light of modern technology, which is probing the depths and expanding the horizons of what is. It's groundbreaking technology that is showing us the imprint of a creator on the world, on humanity, on the universe. Stuff that we believed in faith prior and knew there had to be a creator, but now in the laboratory, they're even showing, how is there such imminent design? How is this possible? It can't be by random chance and circumstance or chemical combinations in the right ways at the right time. They've tried a million different ways and they've come up with the odds of actually stuff just randomly coming together to form complex life. Well, let's just say even minimally complex life or simple life. And it's astronomically high to the point of 10 to the 40,000th. And I have that in research in a different document in my office if you want to know. 10 to the 40,000th. That's 10 with 40,000 zeros after it. You have better chance of winning the lottery. And this is an atheist who's proclaiming this in the documentation I have. See, academia, if you go into the realm of academia, some of you just graduated college, some of you are going into college, you need to go in with a critical mindset. And what I mean by critical is not, well, that person's ugly. I'm not talking about that kind of criticism. I'm talking about the kind of criticism is where you weigh what is being said against the opposing thought or claim. This is why I say you can do that with God because he will always come out on top. I believe unequivocally that if you truly seek God with all your heart, he will show you who he is. 
You will seek me and find me, he says, when you do what? With all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. Some of you have verses of scripture that are your life verses going into the new world. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Just a couple verses later, he says, but you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, because God knows if you're truly seeking him with all your heart, you're going to find him. That's a given. But if you don't seek him with all your heart, part of your heart, half your heart, you might get a small glimpse of something you think is God, but the screams of the world will be louder than that. This is why it takes all of you to seek God with all your heart. See, God rarely screams at us. The normal way he gets in contact with us is that we have to quiet ourselves enough to be able to hear his still, small voice. The book of Elijah, or not the book of Elijah, Elijah in 1 and 2 Kings. You remember he's on the mountaintop? There's a mighty whirlwind, there's an earthquake, the the mountains engulfed with fire, and God, it says, wasn't in any of those things. And so we're expecting God in the big and the great and the glorious. God, speak to me. And we don't quiet ourselves enough to even hear our own voices, much less the voice of God, who in Elijah's time, in that time period, it says, while he was there, There was something like a gentle wind or breeze. And in that breeze, in that quietness, was the whisper of God. When everything else became quiet around him, he was able to hear the voice of wisdom who said, you are not the only one left. I have a remnant that has not bowed to Baal or Astra. Or any other God that remained faithful to me, get your butt back off the mountain and go to work. See, wisdom will remind us that we're not the only ones, that there is a God who sits on a throne, who is almighty, who is all-powerful, and able to do abundantly more than we can ever imagine or ask for. But the wisdom of this world, which is truly ignorance, will lead us down a path of destruction and make you feel alone and lost, like you're the only one. The enemy does nothing more than to isolate. That's his greatest tool, is isolation. Because if he can isolate you, he can win the battle over your soul. If he can pull you away from your community of faith, because you're embarrassed, because maybe you've made a mistake and get you lost in your minds, kicking yourself. He's won the battle over you. If he can isolate you, he can win you. If he can't, and Jesus is the Lord of your life, there's nothing you can't accomplish. The next thing, honestly, is the simple-minded remain simple-minded because they refuse to pursue God. So what does simple-mindedness translated from Hebrew actually mean? It does. It does mean stupid. Everybody, Julie. (laughs) Now, that was a word we never were allowed to use in our home. Occasionally slipped out from one of the kids. You're stupid. 
never left my lips, did it, Micaiah? Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, so I would say a situation is stupid and then have to retract that because stupid is not something that we're allowed to say. And if you remember, uh, what is the famous movie, Forrest Gump? Stupid is the stupid does, right? So what is the simple-mindedness? Let me give you a quick glimpse into what this simple-mindedness is. It is, it's not the simple-mindedness of someone who's born with the mental incapacity or who is born mentally handicapped. That's not what Lady Wisdom is talking about here. Do you know what this simple-mindedness is? This is a willful ignorance. This is one who, if you remember, let's go back to the verse here. I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice, rejected all the correction I offered. So I will laugh when you're in trouble. I will mock you when disaster strikes, when calamity overtakes like a storm, and when disaster engulfs like a cyclone and anguish and distress overwhelm you. But then if you go back to verse 22, she says it's those who insist on being simple-minded. Do you catch that word? If you're not careful, you'll skip over words and not realize the context. See, the simple-minded that Lady Wisdom is talking about are those who willfully stick their heads in the sand, who willfully turn a blind eye to the right thing, who willfully do what is wrong, thinking that God, well, God will forgive me. And it seems crass that Lady Wisdom will laugh and mock But do you understand what Lady Wisdom is saying? She's like, I've given you an opportunity more often than not. And then when disaster strikes, because you didn't heed my advice, you're doomed to get what you deserve. You know what the irony is of all of this? Is when we get what we deserve, who do we blame? (laughs) Who? We usually blame God. God, why? And God's like, that's on you. But some of you say, but no, 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 no. I did nothing. Like Job, I'm blameless before the Lord. What? We live in a world that is fraught with danger, difficulty, sin, and death. And I've got to be careful how I say this. Because you've heard me say this before. Let me say it again as gently as I can. Is anyone good? Thank you. Um, no. See, even Jesus was approached by a religious leader and teacher, and he says, good teacher, let me ask you a question. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. Now, the interesting thing is, Jesus is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he's got a double response here, technically, is what he's saying. Why do you call me good? Are you recognizing that he and I are the same? But he's also saying there's no one good but the Father. And Paul reiterates this, and you've heard me say this before, and I've bumbled it a couple times, for all have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God, Romans 3.23. So there's no one who's good. What do we, if we are not good, what do we deserve? Death. See, this is why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke good news. So when when we get into these debates with other people that why do bad things happen to good people? There is no good person. Let's be honest. Well, what about the innocent baby? We call this original sin. 
We are born into a sinful world and are tainted by sin. We only have one hope. We only have one opportunity, and that's through Christ Jesus. There's no one good but the Father. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve everything we get. Even if there's something we haven't done to receive what we're getting, we have to also realize I'm a sinner. Now, if you are saved and you become a child of God, you're considered a saint. And you can't walk around arrogantly promoting that. I'm a saint. You said so yourself from the pulpit. See, true saints of God are not those who walk around arrogantly with a chip on their shoulder. They're the ones who are serving others, who don't walk around with clanging symbols and all of this stuff, as Jesus says, to be noticed. They're the ones who do in quiet and in secret the good deeds that they are given to do without any hope or desire of recognition. It's the first will be last concept, and the last will be first. It's the one who is greatest in the kingdom. It's the one who serves. That is sainthood through Christ Jesus. Lastly, there are only two ways. Excuse me, there's actually only one way um, that's afforded us if we want to learn wisdom, and that's through God. Uh, But there are only two. Let me see this. Hang on. Let me. I'm sorry. A little bit backwards, and I just rewound the tape. Strike that from the record. Here are the two ways ignorance, which leads to death, wisdom, which leads to peace, which is what I talked about earlier. It's only yes or no, belief or unbelief. Ignorance, which leads to death, wisdom, which leads to peace. The Greek philosopher Socrates. Yes, I do read some Greek philosophy from time to time, not because I'm into Greek philosophy, but there's wisdom. In Greek philosophy, listen to what Socrates said. True wisdom is in recognizing our own ignorance. As I said earlier, one of the things that getting more education and more degrees has taught me is how really ignorant I am. I've spent tens of thousands of dollars to find out how dumb I am. (laughs) It's really what it boils down to. But let me explain that. I don't know that I would have been afforded that opportunity hadn't I been open to receiving wisdom for what it's worth and gaining the experience of the knowledge that I've gained and looking at things critically. Because one of the things I've realized is, as I've grown in knowledge and understanding, I've also been humbled by it. Because there is a vast array and expanse of wisdom and knowledge out there to be tapped into that we barely scratch the surface on, specifically related to God. For now we see through a glass dimly, Paul says. The Greek philosopher Plato said that ignorance is the root and the stem of all evil. Famed 20th century scientist Albert Einstein said the only thing more dangerous than ignorance is arrogance. And I would even take that one a step further to contend that arrogance is rooted in ignorance. I've seen a lot of ignorant people, blatantly so, who strut around acting like they're high on the hog, but are really fools. Theologian and author J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes, It is to be feared that many Christians spend their lives in too unhumbled and conceited a frame of mind ever to gain wisdom from God at all. 
And he goes on to write, it is also to be feared that many today who profess to be Christ's never learn wisdom through failure to attend sufficiently to God's written word. Why are we ignorant? Because we fail to read the very words of God given to us to instruct us on how to live and how to become that light and salt in which we were instructed to be. So when difficulty comes, when the empty philosophies and the high-sounding nonsense of society beckon at our door, we can't distinguish the truth from a lie. If all wisdom is rooted in Christ, then where do we go to find it? There's only one place, Christ. And ironically, if you read Roman, or no, 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 Revelation 3.20, wisdom comes knocking at the door. Jesus is standing at the door knocking. And we don't, even, we don't always have to go out and find it. Lady Wisdom goes in the streets. Here I am. Wisdom is hidden. It's there for the taking. But the ignorant turn a blind eye to it because it's usually not very popular. So who's wise? As our worship team comes forward to close this out, James Elliott, American Christian missionary and about five other people killed during uh, Operation AUCA, A-U-C-A, an attempt to evangelize uh, the people of Ecuador, this tribal people of Ecuador. He says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. See, wisdom is not gained in the great pursuit of knowledge apart from God, but rather in the great pursuit of God where truth and knowledge lie. If one could gain wisdom, he must first have faith in God in whom all knowledge and wisdom abounds. The writer of Proverbs proclaims the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And this being graduation Sunday, let me leave you with this small little tidbit again. I've been quoting throughout the whole sermon. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. And now, just as you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. What does continue to follow him mean? Continue to follow him. There's nothing great or deep in that. It's, you've got to continue to do it. It's a daily pursuit. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by physical procedure. Christ performed this spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your, of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. 
Then God made you alive in Christ. For he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. And he took away, took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, what does he do? He disarms the spiritual rulers and authorities of this world. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them through the cross. Those who learn the way of wisdom live in peace. The altars are open today. If you've not learned the way of wisdom, if you don't know the way to wisdom, he is the only way. He is the truth. And he's the only one who gives life because he is life. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, in this place, I pray that you would be glorified, that God, you would be honored, that God, you would be completely submitted to in every way by every person in this place and within an earshot of me at home. That we would quit flailing and failing as we flail to find understanding because we're seeking it in ways that it cannot be found. Help us to realize that the only true source of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding come through Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.